when I, I wanted to be a professional baseball player so bad as a kid. I wanted to be on a baseball card. I wanted to make money. I wanted to have an awesome car. The car was probably going to be Kit from the Knight Rider, if any of you ever watched that show as a kid. Uh, and I wanted to be famous. Like in my early 20s and 30s, the dream kind of shifted. Honestly, I wanted to be, uh, when I was 14, God called me to be a pastor. And so by my early 20s and, or by my 20s and early 30s, I wanted to be really successful as a pastor, honestly. Like, I wanted to be on a stage. Uh, I wanted to write a book. I wanted for, for people to pay money to come hear me talk. That was something in my early 20s that honestly, I'm embarrassed to say, but that was part of my kind of ambition. And ultimately at the end of it, I just didn't want to have to scrape by. Like I wanted to live by faith, but also be really comfortable. And those were kind of the driving forces in my life. And so I literally took this kind of selfish, self-serving, childish desire to be a professional baseball player and kind of just baptized it. It was like, God, just make me comfortable, but on a different platform in a different way. And so it was like, God, like and when I was a kid and delusional about my baseball abilities, I wanted to be famous and self-serving. And then as a young adult, I still wanted to be famous and still wanted to be self-serving, but I kind of wanted to like Christianize it or like bless it or throw some Christian terms on it. And, uh, and it still was going to end up at the same way. And I'd be lying. Like, I don't know how you guys are, but I would be lying if I claimed on some level that I don't still have this sort of desire, not for fame, but a desire for comfort. Like, how many of us want to be comfortable? Yeah, Nikki, like, even raised her hand. I even asked you to raise your hand, and you still raised your hand, and that's great. Like, um, we, we all kind of have this desire deep within us to be approved and um, comfortable and all of those things. And so if you think about the best-case scenario for your life or for Lana and Nat and Carson and I, like, for your kids or, uh, you know, if you think about the best-case scenarios, how many of them, have you less comfortable and less blessed? Like we want those things. We crave those things on a deep level. And there's nothing necessarily wrong with those things. But I think like on some level, if we're going to be, if we're going to make bold moves in faith in Christ, we're going to have to begin to like let the sandcastle kingdoms of self get run over by the waves of God's grace and mercy and, and holiness. And so we've got, God calls us um, and he loves us. And he, so he calls us to himself and he put this idea in my heart about three or four months ago that the next year that our church would just be marked by insanely bold moves regardless of the cost. So I want to talk through a parable in Matthew 25. Um, we're going to start in verse 14. It's just before, literally days before Jesus' arrest and crucifixion and death. It's like it's go time. It's the 11th hour. It's the inside the two-minute warning. And Jesus is telling his disciples a parable Probably it's definitely the 12 and maybe sort of his outer ring of disciples as well. And he says this in Matthew 25, 14. For the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. A talent is not an ability. A talent is an amount of money. We'll talk about that in a moment. Each according to his ability. Then he went away. And he who had received five talents it went, uh, went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who received one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. 
And the master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. Verse 22. And he also who had two talents came forward and said, master, you have delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. And his master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what's yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will uh, have it in abundance. Uh, But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Honestly, I feel like that third servant gets a bad rap. Like, uh, I always have. uh, And it actually turns out that in first century ancient Near East, that wasn't the awful thing to do. But Jesus is going to say, look what the culturally normative thing to do is and look at the risk that I'm calling you to take and understand that I don't want you burying what you have. I would rather you lose something taking a risk than do nothing with it and bury it in the ground. So essentially in this parable, there's three characters. There's not actually four characters. The the five-talent guy and the two-talent guy are essentially the same person and so there's no hidden meaning either and like we don't have to allegorize this and say well what does the five mean and what does the two mean they don't mean necessarily anything it's just Jesus is saying here's some different people and they had different abilities and they were given some money based on their abilities and so there's the master the good servant and the bad servant now the master is really really wealthy and despite what that wicked servant says, how he says, I knew that you were mean and hard and, and you reap where you didn't, or you sow where you didn't reap and all that. The truth is that master's not like that at all. The master is actually very generous and very, very trusting with these servants. He gives them, uh, he gives to them according to each's ability, meaning they're not equally gifted and capable. In God's kingdom, we are all equally valuable and we all have equal dignity but we don't all have equal ability. That's pretty obvious when we kind of look around. One of our friends the other night named Jared Kirk, pastors Renewal Church in the Back Bay, they came over to our house and, um, and visited with us for a little bit. And Jared is probably the most gifted preacher I know in Boston. He is insanely gifted. I am not as gifted as Jared. Am I mad at God for that? No, God's gifted me the way he's gifted me. All of us have different gifts. And so the master delves out, divvies out these talents based on everyone's gifts. Now, they're not talents like we think of them, like abilities. They're actually an amount of money. Biblical scholars have looked at what a talent is, and the talent is the equivalent of $200,000 in today's economy. So if one, so here's the master, and he comes into his servants. These aren't financial sort of investors. These aren't the white-collar you know, like CFOs of his, uh, you know, his estate. These are just servants. And to one servant, he gives a million dollars. And to the next servant, he gives $400,000. And to the last servant, who by all accounts is probably just not a good dude to begin with, he gives $200,000. 
And uh, it, it, this would be the equivalent of Warren Buffett coming in and giving a million dollars or $10 million to his day shift janitor, um, $4 million to his night shift janitor, and $2 million to his holiday weekend janitor. Like for Warren Buffett, it, it, it's, that's a big deal. For the janitors, it's crazy. It makes no sense whatsoever. The second character in here is, uh, the, is the good servants. One gets the million, one gets 400,000. And there's a ton of trust that's banked in them. And there's tons of generosity and, on the master's part and risk and investment on the part of the good servants. And they double the investment. They, they double the investment. It's pretty incredible. They do something with what the generous master has given them. And the bad servant is the third one. The third character. He does nothing. He buries it. He takes no risk. He gets punished. And, uh, and actually, his lack of risk kind of exposes his heart. He didn't know the heart of the master. He says, Master, you aren't nice and generous. And yet the master had just invested $200,000 in him. Like, it's kind of a ridiculous accusation if we think of it. So we see that the servant doesn't understand the heart of the master in saying this. It makes me think, honestly, this is off track. It's not in the notes. Uh, Natalie's dad was really tight with money. And we were convinced when he passed away that we were going to find money buried in the backyard. And, uh, and we never did. But I don't know why. Like the only person I ever thought was going to have buried money was my father-in-law. And he didn't bury any money. And we didn't get anything. So that was free. Um, so the, the master calls this servant wicked and lazy Wicked is like hurtful and harmful and evil and malignant. Like think about a mal that word in, in Greek, that hurtful or that, um, that wicked word means like malignant. Think of a tumor that's inoperable but is spreading. You are wicked. You are contagiously, hurtfully, harmfully wicked. And when he says you're lazy, you are hesitating and shrinking back and you're sleepy. I just think of the sloths from Zootopia. Remember them? Huh. 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 Like, that's what I think of. And, and, and the master says, you are wicked like a tumor and lazy like a sloth and you are bringing harm to my estate. And he punishes him. Why is the deed so bad? Because the master was so good. He gave them a chance to be part of something undeserved and incredible and bless them so that they could do it. And for us, God is so generous and so good. So how can we see the people who have Christ, don't have Christ or like material or relational needs and kind of just say, I'm going to bury everything I have. When God is so good, when the Friday I woke up and um, I told Nat, like I just felt weepy when I would think about the Lord. Like, I don't know if you ever feel like that. It was almost like I was just on the verge of just crying, thinking about how good God is and how unlovable un, uh, I am if left to myself. And I just started crying and I started writing out the sermon and just like misty eyed and teary eyed as I wrote, thinking about God. And how good he is, like the good master. And me, how so many people can be so far from Christ and so needy. And there's so many different ways I can step into the need. And so often I just kind of bury what God's given me in the dirt. Um, for no reason. Out of a total misunderstanding of the heart of God. And of his provision for me in Christ. And so uh, whether it's fear. Uh, so often for me it's fear. But for some people, it's busyness. For some of us, it's longing to maintain our comfort. 
there's a ton of different reasons we, that we do this, but there's so often we bury what God's given us. And he would say, um, when we do that, we are being wicked and lazy. And by way of indictment, and, I, and, we'll deal, and we'll move away from the negative Nancy stuff here in a second. But one reason the church in America is so dead is because it's so fat. Our, our, we are so, uh, our church, capital C church, in, in our culture is so dead because it's been so, it's, it's literally had living water and resources poured into it and poured into it with nothing going out. And we can be, if left to ourselves to worship our comfort and to avoid fear, we can be like this wicked servant. So Craig Blomberg, who's one of my favorite theologians, and Renee, uh, I've got a book by Craig Blomberg, but I actually want to give you called Interpreting the Parables. When he interprets this parable, he, he says there's essentially three uh, main points in this parable. Now, don't write these down, but I am going to get you to take notes on something in a second. I think we actually have slides up for it here in a moment. But here's the three main points of the parable. One, quoting Blomberg, like the master, God entrusts all people with a portion of his resources, expecting them to act as good stewards of it. And that's not just money. That's also relationships, gifts. If I challenged you to go home today and write a list of everything you have, understand that everything you have, every person you know, every dollar you have, every possession you own, every ability that is yours is given to you as a gift from God. It is not, in fact, ours. It is something to we, that we are to steward. Number two, like the, good, like the two good servants, God's people will be commended and rewarded when they have faithfully discharged that commission. I want God to look at me one day and go, good job. Good job. You did, you did good with what I gave you. And number three, Blomberg says, like the wicked servant, those who fail to use the gifts God has given them for his service will be punished by separation from God and all good things. This final point seems appropriate both for those who are overtly hostile to God and his revelation and for those who profess commitment to him but show no evidence in their lives of the reality of their profession. So I think there's three truths here that we do need to get. And I think, I think we may actually have slides for these. Uh, number one, by sort of, these will be the, the underpinning for the application. One, God gives you more than you deserve. God gives you more than you deserve. Uh, this week, we'll celebrate Thanksgiving, unless you're Canadian and you celebrated it a month and a half ago. Like, we will celebrate all that we have this week. And I promise you, every one of us has more than we deserve. God is so big and so good that we've coined these omni words for God, that he is omnipresent, uh, that he's all-present, uh, that he is omniscient, that he's all-knowing, that he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He's all loving. We add to it that he is perfectly holy. He's perfectly just. He is perfectly good. In light of that, or in, in despite that, by contrast, you and I are fragile. We come with expiration dates. We come with expiration dates. Like, I don't like to think about that, right? Like, um, I don't like to think that there's a day that I, my life is going to end. We're limited and, and we sin against God, even though he's revealed himself and offered us relationship with him in Christ. In light of his power and holiness and our rejection of him, anything that he gives us is totally undeserved and an act of grace, whether it's health or prosperity or family or friendships or jobs or love, even life itself. Just the ability to get up and breathe is an act of grace from God that we don't deserve. Number two, 
God gives you more than you can handle, but never more than he can handle. Michaela, I think you and Nat talked about this the other day. I promise that I didn't overhear you and write this. Nat, I was talking with Nat about the message. She was like, holy smokes. Uh, Michaela and I just talked about this. The reason this is to drive us to repentance. This is to drive us to dependence on God. God's desire with our talents and our trials is to drive us to him. I hear people say, I've heard people say at funeral homes. I've seen people post it on social media. I've heard people say it all the time. You know, God's never going to give you more than you can handle. Lana, I bet a year ago people were telling you with good intentions, Lana, God's never going to give you more than you can handle, right? The truth is that was a lot more than you can handle. And there's a ton of times in life where God's going to give us more than we can handle. There's going to be circumstances that we can't handle. There's going to be relationships that we can't handle. There's going to be struggles and temptations we can't handle. There's going to be tons of times in life that we get more than we can handle. We know that's true. Like we look at other people and we see, boy, they're dealing with more than they can handle. God does that very intentionally. The idea that God never gives you more than you can handle is a total lie. God will never give you more than he can handle. That's the gospel. God will never give you more than he can handle. So when you uh, allow God to have full permission to be with you in the middle of even your darkest and heaviest things, God will be very present and he will provide for you. And we see this even in this story. God gives these guys more than they deserve. And it's more than they even know what to do with. God will give you more than you can handle. Never more, never less. If you trust in him and don't sort of cast off independence and lean on him. God will also not give you less than you can handle. I want to emphasize that. He gives to these people. So to the guy who could handle five talents, he gave five talents. To the guy who could handle Two talents he gave two. To the uh, person who can handle one, he gave one. He didn't give them more than they can handle. He didn't say, boy, you know, you're only a five-talent servant, but I'm going to give you 20. Good luck with that. They'd have been overwhelmed. He also didn't give to the five the one. God will never give you less than you can handle. God didn't have a plan from the foundation of the world. He didn't become a baby born to a poor Jewish teenager. He didn't die naked on the cross, didn't rise from the dead three Jewish days later, just so that we could come to church, try to be good people, reform some bad habits, and then handle it for him. God didn't do that. We have to stop living a small, boring Christianity. Our lives need to be marked by this testimony. If God hadn't shown up, I was toast. But praise God, he showed up. Praise God, he showed up. Number three. God will give us more. And this is crazy to me, but it is true. It's in this parable and it's true throughout scripture. God will give us more as we make bold moves. But it's not about more stuff. Like it's not the baseball player dream I had or the preacher on the stage with a lot of money dream that I had later in life. Uh, I would say, in fact, that when we have an all in faith, stuff becomes a little bit less appealing. But what Jesus is inviting us to, the more he's offering is more of himself, more of himself, that we can know him more. The joy of the master, as the parable says, or the master's happiness, intimacy with Christ, knowing the heart of God. If our aim is more blessings in this life, it's not that our aims are too big. It's that our aims are too small. 
The Christian who just wants more all the time has small dreams. God is offering himself and we are asking for table scraps. In a kingdom where the streets that we walk on and don't even notice are made of the finest gold that we would ever see. Like literally the sidewalks are made of gold. Why would that become the chief ambition of my own heart? When God offers himself, why do we want handouts? Don't waste your life and play it safe. I want to encourage you to make bold moves. Now, in what is arguably the, the most famous sermon of, of this century, right? Uh, Pastor John Piper spoke to thousands of college students at the Passion One Day Conference. Some of you will have seen this video clip before, but it, it was so transformative for me when I saw it for the first time at age 22. I want to share it with you. So on May 20th, 2000, Piper is speaking to thousands of college students at a field just outside of, I believe, Nashville or maybe Memphis, Tennessee. And his challenge that he's giving them is to not waste their lives. And, and what happened after this message, literally, it, 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 it literally launched a thousand church plans. And it sent hundreds of people into the foreign mission field. And it forever changed the trajectories of a ton of people in their early 20s and late teens. And it, the, the ripple effects of this sermon, and particularly this seven-minute clip, are still being felt today. So if you wouldn't mind, Nick, if you go ahead and play that. You don't have to know a lot of things in order to make a huge difference for the Lord in the world. But you do need to know a few things that are great and be willing to live for them and die for them. People that make a difference in the world are not people who have mastered a lot of things. They are people who have been mastered by a very few things that are very, very great. If you want your life to count, you don't have to have a high IQ and you don't have to have a high EQ. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have good looks. You don't have to be from a good family or from a good school. You just have to know a few basic, simple, glorious, majestic, obvious, unchanging, eternal things and be gripped by them and be willing to lay down your life for them. Which is why anybody in this crowd can make a worldwide difference because it isn't you. It's what you're gripped with. But one of the really sad things about this moment right now is that there are hundreds of you in this crowd who do not want your life to make a difference. All you want is to be liked. Maybe finish school, get a good job, find a husband or a wife, a nice house, a nice car, long weekends, good vacations, grow old healthy, have a fun retirement, 
die easy, no hell. And that's all you want. You don't give a rip whether your life counts on this earth for eternity. That's a tragedy in the making. That is a tragedy in the making. About three weeks ago, we got news at our church that Ruby Eliason and Laura Edwards were killed in Cameroon. Ruby Eliason, over 80, single all her life, a nurse, poured her life out for one thing, to make Jesus Christ known among the sick and the poor in the hardest and most unreached places. Laura Edwards, a medical doctor in the Twin Cities, and then in retirement, partnering up with Ruby, also pushing 80, and going from village to village in Cameroon. And the brakes give way, over a cliff they go, and they're dead instantly. And I asked my people, is this a tragedy? Two women in their 80s, almost, a, a whole life devoted to one idea, Jesus Christ magnified among the poor and the sick in the hardest places. And 20 years after most of their American counterparts had begun to throw their lives away on trivialities in Florida and New Mexico, fly into eternity with a death in a moment. Is this a tragedy, I asked. It is not a tragedy. I'll read you what a tragedy is. I've got a little article here from Reader's Digest. You don't read Reader's Digest, I know that. But there is a generation who does. This is a tragedy. Title of the article, Start Now, Retire Early, February 1998. Bob and Penny took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast five years ago when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect shells. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy, and there are people in this country that are spending billions of dollars to get you to buy it. And I get 40 minutes to plead with you, don't buy it. With all my heart, I plead with you, don't buy that dream. The American dream 
A nice house, a nice car, a nice job, a nice family, a nice retirement, collecting shells. As the last chapter, before you stand before the creator of the universe to give an account with what you did. Here it is, Lord, my shell collection. Look, Lord, my shell collection. And I've got a good swing. And look at my boat. God, look at my boat, God. Well, not for Ruby and not for Laura. Don't waste your life. Don't waste it. God isn't asking us to do more than we are able. Um, he is asking you and I to look at him, look at what he paid to have us repent of sin and to be his. I can get anxiety when I think about living a life that's big and doing stuff like that. And that, but that's not what God's asking. God's just asking us to belong to him and to leverage every bit of every talent that he has given us for the sake of his kingdom and his glory. That's not made to make us feel guilty. It's, it's made to make us throw our hands up and surrender and say, God, it's all grace and all a gift. And then to free us to make moves in his kingdom. God's people should make bold moves. We were made to move mountains, not just to go uh, and do parlor magic tricks, but to literally share and embody good news in a way that calls people to repentance and faith, changes families, changes communities, even changes nations. Churches should make bold moves. Our church should be the boldest place in this community. It's why over the next six weeks, we're giving away every dollar that comes in because we want our community to see our church making bold moves. It's why next year we're restructuring our groups completely. It's why next year we're giving away resources to start more churches in New England. When some people would say, no, you're still trying to start one church in Charlestown. And we say, no, the Lord is calling us to start more than one church. These are bold moves. The kingdom of Jesus isn't a place for playing it safe. And if we need proof of that, we look to the cross where God purchased our redemption. So three things I would encourage us to do by way of application. One, meditate on the gospel. That word meditate is like the idea of a dog getting a bone, a nice ham bone after Christmas and taking it and sort of just right and then carrying it over and sitting under a tree in the shade and just chewing on that bone. Meditate on the gospel, on how sinful you are, on how holy and good God is, on how wide is the chasm between you and him, how inept and holy and capable we are to bridge the gap, how great the price Christ paid to accomplish our salvation, how humiliating and how painful the cross, whew, how lonely and agonizing the separation from God, how heavy the weight of sin, how costly the price of reconciliation how complete the price he paid for our redemption and how we can add nothing to it or take anything from it and how effortless it is on our part as we receive the gospel. We don't bring the gospel. We don't go get the gospel over and over in scripture. We only receive the gospel. We do nothing 
um, to add to it or bring to it. How fully adopted we are. Meditate on that. Meditate on how loved we are against all logic and common sense. Some of you can crumble by midweek under the weight of condemnation, but it's not from the Lord, and under the weight of guilt. And I want to tell you, you are fully adopted and fully free. And yet, um, how compelled we are in Christ. Non-Christian, if Christ is calling you to himself, make bold moves of repentance and surrender. If you're a Christ follower, meditate on the gospel. Think on it. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to yourself. When you look in the mirror, when you ride in the car, let it get down deep into your bones and let it affect everything. Number two, by way of application, what we do with this parable. William Carey, the father of the uh, modern mission movement, said, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Try something. Take a faith risk. And I don't mean a baby step. Like, take a crazy step of faith, a giant leap. Don't waste your life. We're not doing trench warfare anymore. So often Christians just want to do trench warfare. Like, I'm going to let God have an inch, and then the enemy will defeat me, and I'll move back an inch. And it's like a battle for years and years, for literal inches of back and forth, like World War I soldiers for days and weeks at the cost of blood and sweat and tears. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul wrote, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And then I love this phrase, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy. We don't live the faith out of our energy. We don't do church out of our energy. We struggle with all of his energy. Any talent that he calls us to invest is his money. It's his energy that Paul says he powerfully works within me. God is giving you his energy. That's not baby step, mousy, small faith or power or resource energy. God wants his kingdom to come and advance boldly in your heart in life and relationships and habits. Make bold moves, outrageous moves, even reckless moves, reckless moves. You were made to move mountains, put sin to death, live in the victory of gospel power. You can do more than you have been told. I wanna tell you, churches, if you've grown up in churches, I promise you, you, have, you can do more than churches have told you you can do. Whatever you've been told, by a pastor or a leader or a church that you can do, I promise you can do more. Now that doesn't mean put on a Superman cape and go jump off a roof. It just means like God wants to do incredible things in, with, for, and through you. We're not here to be nice people and a nice church and a nice community where it's all nice and cute and everyone likes us. The gospel is bold and offensive. And when we live it boldly and humbly in his power and by faith, it calls people from sin and death to life and freedom and forgiveness. And number three, finally, Christ followers, leave margin for God to do more and give more of himself. And this is very tangible, uh, but it's very specific what I wanna encourage you to do. Free up your calendar and your budget. So you say, this is what it's gonna take for us to live, to, to pay to live, to pay our bills, to pay and do and, you know, and, and whatever, and then take the margin and begin to use that for bold moves. Give your best, your most sincere, your most thoughtful gifts to Christ this Christmas. 
and look to the manger and see him doing the same for you. And at Christmas and into 2021, crazy as it sounds, figure out what you have to do and have to spend and then just cap it. Allowing yourself to give away time and resources above it. Make a budget. Get rid of useless time wasters in your calendar. Doing so doesn't make God love us more. Uh, It doesn't give us more stuff. It begins to eliminate the temptations to waste our lives. Uh, Collecting shells, perfecting our swing, chasing trophies and trinkets of the world. Give away your life, your rights, your dreams, your script, your comfort, and pursue Christ and watch him move mountains. He alone is worthy. I think in this room, Lana and, and Carson have lived in this community for the longest, if not Renee, about probably the same time. This neighborhood and this city will conspire to steal every bit of money and time that you have left over. There are always things you can find that will consume who you are. You have to intentionally leave margin. S.K. Weber has written, the, the part of the kingdom entrusted to each of us is precious to the Lord. In other words, what's entrusted to Natalie is not also simultaneously entrusted to Nick. And what's entrusted to Michaela is not simultaneously entrusted to Renee. There's been something entrusted to each one of us that is precious and unique. And if we sit on it, bury it in the dirt, it goes, it, 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 it can't be replaced and it can't be substituted by someone else's obedience or faith. He is hurt by the mishandling of a lifetime of opportunity, but he rejoices over a lifetime well spent. He has placed in our hands what is his own. Don't play it safe. Let's not play it safe. Let's weep. Um, Let's weep for and repent of years and resources spent on small dreams and living and ask God to make us good managers of whether it's five or two or one talent investment of the gospel He's made in us. Let's make the most of all of it. Let me pray for us.